are you going to call when paranormal chaos once again descends upon New York City? Thanks to this 80s flick sequel, the answer remains the same, Ghostbusters. Taking place five years after the team's first victory over the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man and Gozer, the Ghostbusters have fallen out of business and out of favor with the city they fought so hard to protect. But when a malicious slime starts to cause chaos and empower the evil Vigo the Carpathian, the Ghostbusters are called out of retirement to save the day once again. So strap on your proton packs, call Janine and Lewis to babysit, and crank up the siren in Ecto-1 as Laramie Wells and I discuss Ghostbusters 2 from 1989 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. It's five years later. Here? A lot of things have changed. Oh, I thought it was going to be He-Man. Ungrateful little yuppie larva. But when the slime starts to rise... The Titanic just arrived. And ghosts start arriving by the boatload. Who are you going to call? Second the cuts, guys, with the Ghostbusters. It's slime time. Two in the box! Ready to go! We be fast and Davey slow! Bill Murray. I need to feel loved. I need to be desired. Dan Aykroyd. Slime! It's a river of slime! Sigourney Weaver. Don't put any of those old cheap moves on me. I have all new cheap moves. Harold Ramis. Yo! Rick Moranis. Annie Potts. Typical. And Ernie Hudson. In an Ivan Reitman film, Ghostbusters 2. (laughs) You're scaring me. Stop it. Rated PG. Now playing at theaters everywhere. Hello, movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. On each episode, I'm joined by an 80s Flick-loving guest co-host to talk about one of the great and sometimes not-so-great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser-known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now-defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter which 80s flick we choose for each episode, we have a lot of fun sharing first-time watch memories, discussing our favorite iconic scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe and follow 80s Flick Flashback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And while you're there, leave us a stellar written review and a five-star rating. You can also support the show by following us on our social media pages. Just search for 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And don't forget to check out our website, 80sflickflashback.com as well. If you want to take your support to the next level, you can become a financial partner for less than $10 a month. The link to financially support the podcast is located in our episode show notes. And while you're there, be sure to check out more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into today's episode. Thanks for listening. Now, on with the show. All right, well, welcome in, everybody. So glad to have you on this episode. We are uh, coming to the end of our Summer of Sequels series as we enter August of 2023. 
Uh, we've had some great ones so far, and the fun continues with another great one, as I always say. As Laramie and I discuss Ghostbusters 2, but as I said... This the in- Secret of the Ooze. The Secret of the Ooze, yeah, exactly. He was here for the first one, had to bring him back for the next one. He's a big fan of the Ghostbusters uh, sequels, or not I'm not the sequels, but the saga. No, all, it, all everything of them. Ghostbusters. Yeah, he's, yes. a, he's Mr. Ghostbusters all the time. Uh, please welcome from Moving Panels Podcast, Mr. Laramie Wells. How you doing, Laramie? I am good. I had a slinky once. I straightened it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Half a slinky. It's half, half a, slinky, a slinky. Yeah, I had half a slinky. Right, right. So Which is uh, so weird. Yeah, <laughs> he does have some very weird lines in this one. He's like, he's, to me, it's not the straightening it. It's the fact it that he had half, half one. a slinky. Right. Yeah. I was like, did you split it with your brothers and sisters? I don't know. Um, but anyway, so let's jump in uh, as we always do. I'm sure you saw this one on TV, but I'll ask you again. When did you see Ghostbusters two for the first time? I saw it in theaters. Oh, yes, we finally made it. <laughs> I saw it in theaters. Yes. Saw it in theaters. This, uh, yeah, just, this is one that I loved. Mm-hmm. And, I, yeah, I remember seeing this one in theaters. I'm not sure, like, how far into theater, into the, the theater it had been. Right, right. Because in, in my hometown, we had a little twin cinema. Mm-hmm. And we sometimes didn't get the movies until, like, maybe a month or two after gotcha. they had been released. Right, right. But I did see Ghostbusters 2 in theaters. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Mark it, mark it, mark it. There you go. That's it. First time. I think this was the first one. I'm pretty sure I saw this one in theaters, but I, like you, I didn't see it when it first came out. It was, it was one that I kept wanting to go see, but either my friends didn't want to go see it or we just, you know, I wasn't, I was, I remember being out of town, uh, being at the beach with a friend of mine and there was a theater across the street from where we were staying and it had Batman, I think it had Batman, Indiana Jones and Last Crusade and Ghostbusters 2. And I'd already... How awesome right, of a lineup right. is that? And I had already seen Batman. So I really wanted, I was like, I wanted a double feature to see Indiana Jones and Ghostbusters 2. But I really was excited about seeing Ghostbusters 2 and so I was hoping we would go, we would go see it. And we never did. But uh, I when I got back home, I saw it later uh, in the theater, but uh, <clears throat> it was enjoyable. So, how long has it been since you watched it before rewatching it for the podcast? Uh, not extremely long, because mm-hmm. uh, I, I think we rewatched both of these right before Afterlife uh, okay. came out. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, kind of, uh, kind of to show Ruby mm-hmm. through the the Ghostbusters, so she could get the background. So it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. I think I rewatched the second one right after we recorded our Ghostbusters episode, which would have been about a year ago or a little, maybe a year and a half ago, I think, maybe. Hasn't been yeah. that long. Because um, I bought the two-pack, um, the DV, the Blu-ray two-pack, and had one and two together. And so, usually when I watch a first one and there's a sequel, I want to watch the next one, you know, in a week, yeah. week or two. So I remember going back and watching it, but it had been a long time since I had watched the second one, Um before watching it then so but it was still fun to rewatch it again the other day uh getting ready for the podcast so it's not as it's i definitely remember the first ghostbusters more because i've seen it more but there's yeah. parts of this one that i that are i really remember uh, they still there, stand out really well yeah yeah there are moments of this one that is just i mean pure nostalgia for me mm-hmm. and i think it is because i saw it in theaters and i was such the big Ghostbusters fan. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I'm not going to say that the first one's not better. Right. But 
But this second one, there's just so much about the second one that just gives me the good feels. <laughs> and, and yeah, I'm sitting there quoting, like I'm saying the lines mm-hmm. two seconds before they're saying the oh, line. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, you know, from the offset, we I don't think either one of us would say that this one is better than or even equal to as good as the first one. But that doesn't it's, mean it's, it's right bad. There. But I mean, it's still it's right enjoyable. There. Yeah, uh, it's still enjoyable. I think, and we'll talk about some of its struggles getting remade, you know, why it took five years before the sequel was made. So I guess we'll jump into that right now as we get into story origin and pre-production. I guess that sounds like a good plan, right? It sounds like a plan. That's what we do. Of course, the original Ghostbusters film was a huge success, so a sequel was inevitable. However, making the sequel was challenging with conflicts behind the scenes, receiving as much media coverage as the film itself. David Putnam had become chairman of Columbia Pictures in June of 86 and preferred to produce smaller films rather than the expensive blockbusters. He also greenlit several foreign language films by European directors. As Ghostbusters was part of for- the former Columbia executive Frank Price's legacy, Putman had no interest in furthering that legacy. The delay in development was not all Putman's fault. The main actors did not want to make a sequel for almost three years. By the time they decided to go ahead, Murray was already committed to his role in Scrooged, and the script wasn't ready. The co-creators Reitman, Murray, Aykroyd, and Ramis all had control over the franchise, and their unanimous approval was required to proceed. In April of 87, Putnam announced that Ghostbusters 2 would go into production in November of that year without having informed Reitman. (laughs) Putnam was then removed from his job in September, in part because he had alienated Murray and his talent agent, Michael Ovitz. Stawn Deal replaced Putnam as Columbia president. When she took the job, her corporate bosses made it clear that getting the sequel into production was a priority. So by November, filming was scheduled to begin in the summer of the following year. So lots of uh, changes in the the big wigs up top. <laughs> the guys that count the money were like, let's not do that. I want art, <laughs> right, not money. Right. Uh, yeah. So then they had the negotiations uh, that followed. Reitman, Murray, Aykroyd, and Ramis had to negotiate a minimal salary in exchange for a percentage of the box office profits. The deal was reported to be 10% of the box office for each per each actor. After this, the film was rushed into production and shooting was scheduled for mid-1988 with a mid-1989 release. During the creation of the screenplay for Ghostbusters 2, Dan Aykroyd initially wrote a draft that he felt was too inaccessible and far out. But his first script was really far out, so I was like, "That that still kind of tracks." Yeah, like wasn't wasn't the first Ghostbusters like it would have been like a three hour, four hour movie yeah. or something? And weren't they in outer space or something in the first one? Like, or am I thinking something else? Oh, I can't. Uh, yeah, there yeah, there, there was, was something, something about where he wanted it, to show like the Ghostbusters on other planets or something like that. Maybe I'm thinking of yeah something else. No, no, no. I'm remembering. Yeah. yeah, you might be thinking of something else, but I I am recalling whatever it is is something that exists like like they'd be on the moon or something yeah yeah but his yeah. initial script was very much about the paranormal than that it was real that wasn't as much of co- of the comedy aspect that it become it was yeah. really more about you know ufos or not ufos uh ghosts are no, real yeah. and that kind of stuff so. and like they yeah they traveled from planet to planet i'm almost thinking you are right because i'm almost in my head picturing this like animation mm-hmm. that they did on the movies that made us on right, Netflix. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, I knew that, you know, it was, it was in there. It was buried, <laughs> buried a little deeper than it should have been. 
So, but he said that it was too inaccessible and far out. He wanted to avoid using New York City as a setting, preferring to set the film overseas and include a subterranean threat. His draft followed Dana Barrett, who is kidnapped and taken to Scotland, where she discovers a fairy ring and an underground civilization. The Ghostbusters would have had to travel through an underground pneumatic tube that was over 2,000 miles long and would take three days to get through. However, Ackroyd eventually decided to keep the New York setting to allow for continuity and better fit the story he wanted to tell. So Ackroyd worked with Harold Ramis to refine the script, and they decided that Ghostbusters 2 would reflect the five-year passage of time between the two films. Ramis suggested the story focus on a baby because he had previously developed a horror movie concept centered on an infant who was possessing adult abilities. This inspired him to create the character of Oscar. Initially, the child was going to be the son of Peter and Dana, who would have maintained their relationship in the years between. However, they chose to have Peter and Dana's relationship fail, allowing her to marry, have a child, and be divorced by the events of Ghostbusters 2. Ramus wanted to show the Ghostbusters had not remained heroes after their victory in the previous film. The concept of the River of Slime was conceived early in their collaboration. Ramus wanted the slime beneath New York City to represent moral issues caused by the buildup of negative human emotions in large cities. He considered it a metaphor for urban decay and a call to deliver a human solution. Ackroyd said they wanted to show negativity has to go somewhere, potentially into the person the emotion is directed towards. The story evolved far from Ramus and Ackroyd's efforts, but retained the core notion of emotions and their impact. So I have a problem. Where where were ghosts right. the last five years? Right. Because if they went out of mm-hmm. popularity, does that mean there weren't as many ghosts around? But then in this movie, as soon as they, you know, we're back. As soon as right, they they seem to be going after ghosts everywhere. everywhere. Yeah, I did notice that too. So where did the ghosts go for five years? Yeah, I, I love the opening where you see um, Ray and uh, Zed going to look. Well, they're going to go uh, take care of a ghost, and they end up at the kid's yeah. birthday party. So to find out they're not really you know ghost busting anymore. Yeah. But at, at that point, I was thinking, well. Once yeah. they got rid of Gozer, that that capped off where the ghosts were able to come to our side. So that's why they didn't have any business. But like you said, once the ooze kind of starts coming out, you still don't see a lot of ghosts. Like it doesn't have that kind of a slow reveal like the first one does. You have the weird things with the painting. But yeah, like you said, once they're like, we need you, once the, once the uh, ghosts show up in the courtroom... Yeah. The Scolari brothers. The Scolari brothers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, like I said, they're just they're everywhere. So I'm I'm assuming that it's tied with the ooze, like once the, or the yeah the 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 slime under the city. Yeah, once it just, starts to make it to the surface, then they begin to come out again. But it's just not clear. Yeah. yeah, I think it was just they just wanted to rehash kind of that kind of montage they had in the first one of them, all the different types of ghosts that they were uh, catching. In a short yeah. amount of time. so. But as we talked about in the first episode about the cartoon, the real Ghostbusters had come out cartoon uh, and became very popular with the target child audience. Uh, for that reason, uh, the team was tasked with balancing the needs of Ghostbusters fans and those of the cartoon's audience. According to producer Joe Midjuk, the cartoon's success was influential in the return of Slimer for the sequel, and they aimed to avoid contradicting the cartoon where possible. Although the Ghostbusters had been out of work for five years, they had to act as though the cartoon's events took place after the film. 
which once again is kind of a weird timeline. That they took place after the second film or after, after the, first the second film? film. So it kind of okay. shows like where it led into. But I know, uh, and I think I mentioned this later, but like uh, Janine's look was changed to look more like the cartoon uh, for the yeah. movie. And, and then them wearing the different color jumpsuits. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. I think they filmed the dark colored jumpsuits they filmed at the beginning. And then uh, Ivan Reitman was like, I don't like them. I want to go back to the other one. So that's, there's a little continuity issues there where you'll see the gray suits in some spots and then the lighter suits and other spots. And I just kind of, it didn't seem that weird to me. Like even I, I saw that before we watched it and I was like, well, you've got different ones. You know, they're, they're not going to wear the same jumpsuit every time. So to have them in a couple yeah. of different shades isn't that big yeah, of a deal. Yeah, that didn't bother. Yeah, yeah that so didn't bother. It's like a home and away team. Isn't there even? <laughs> isn't there even one time where like maybe Ray and Winston are wearing a different jumpsuit than Peter it's and possible. Egon? It's very possible. I didn't mind that. I yeah. mean, I'll, it it makes it feel like you know it's a a new version of the Ghostbusters right. or you know that they've they've upped their game. You now know? I will say, and I'll I'll say this early: the one thing that stands out to me that I really don't like is I hated that they changed the logo to have the ghost showing the two. To have the two, And it's like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. on their jackets, it's on the car. Yeah, it's the Ecto. Yeah, it's yeah. like, that doesn't make sense. Like, you wouldn't be, no. if you came back in business, you wouldn't be Ghostbusters 2, you'd still be Ghostbusters. Yeah. So that, every time I see that logo in the movie, it just makes me cringe. I'm like, why? Who, yeah. who let this go? Like, whoever in marketing was like, it has to be the same logo, you can't change it. You can't go back to the yeah. old one. I was like, no, you're ruining it. So, uh, I'll agree with that. Yeah, that that that's that's probably my big. This might be my biggest hang up of the whole movie is the logo. Oh, that's your biggest hang up. Okay. Oh, no, I mean, <laughs> until we get talking about other stuff. And now these messages. Comic books have been around for almost a century, and in the last two decades, we've finally gotten to see many of these characters brought to life in movies and on TV. On the Moving Panels podcast, we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and my guests as we discuss both the good and the bad from Marvel, DC, and even some of the lesser-known comic book companies. Learn what is and isn't from the comics, as well as our nerdy review of the movie or show. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. (sighs) What seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world, so many issues. I don't think I can bear it. Well, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR! But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up. That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. What's up, dudes? I'm Jerry D of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and Christmas? Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooged, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas Special. Plus classics shown every year. 
You can also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever, like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gagging with the Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle, and Chant with the Littles. So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories. Later, dudes. We jump into casting, but there's we're going to skip over just about everybody because we covered them in the first one. So yeah. we're not going to rehash. So, But I will mention them. Of course, we had Bill Murray as Peter Vinkman. I do have one note that uh, Ben Stein, who is f- the famous teacher from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, yep. uh, has a small cameo has in the a film. cameo. But he was also considered as a possible replacement for Bill Murray when Murray showed a reluctance to participate in the sequel. Because I didn't go into it too much, but basically like after Ghostbusters, because it was such a huge hit for Bill Murray, like bigger than any other, like he's got Colt, you know, Stripes and Caddyshack were, were, I guess, popular movies, but they weren't big blockbusters like this. He decided to take a break. And I think he did... Razor's Edge, which was like a passion project of his, was more of a drama, and it bombed at the box office. So he kind of took a break and said he wasn't going to act for a while, which is why he didn't come back until Scrooge in 88. So that's why this one came out after that. But um, So there was some time where they were like, he may not come back at all, so they were going to have to recast. I don't know how Ben Stein would have fit into that dynamic. He's a little yeah too much yeah. like... He- um, Egon, Egon yeah. He's, yeah, that would have been weird. Yeah, yeah, that's that's an interesting casting choice that I'm glad we didn't have. That would have definitely taken the sequel down a lot of notches. But then we've got Dan Aykroyd as Ray, Sigourney Weaver as Dana Barrett, Harold Ramis as Egon, Rick Moranis as Lewis, Ernie Hudson as Winston Zeddemore, or Zed as I like to call him. Uh, of course, Annie Potts as Janine. So those are our re- all of our returning, main returning characters of course, the mayor shows back up. We're not going to talk much about him. I think those are the only ones that returned from the first one, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think you got yeah. them all. Yeah, Philip Baker Hall wasn't the police commissioner in the first one. I don't one. think so. I don't think he was, no. no. Reginald Vell Johnson didn't come back, you know, for a second cameo. Um. <laughs> uh, well, he had moved to Los <laughs> right. Angeles that's by right. that that's point. Right. That's right. He was... Yeah. Or he had moved to Chicago and start, had a family. I, what are those I don't two, know which yeah. one of those it was. Yeah. yeah. He, he either moved to Los Angeles so that he could stop a terrorist attack at Nakatomi Plaza or he moved to Chicago and uh, lives there with his family because you know what? Family, family matters. matters. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Alright, so for the new characters we have, we have a few to cover and a few cameos at the end. Uh, so the first one up is Peter McNichol as Janos. I guess that's yes. how you say his name. Janos. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Did you like the accent? I did. Like yeah. I, I find this. I mean, he, you'd ne- you'd never get away with this today, but I, I love I love how uh, there's even the line of where exactly are you from? Mm-hmm. And uh, what does he say? It's like Michigan or something. Like <laughs> like he just names a, a, a state, U.S. United. city. Yeah. yeah. So, but he yeah he was great. Before he was in this, he's had some uh, other notable roles. He was the Southern writer who falls in love with Meryl Streep and Sophie's Choice, which is actually where he got the accent from. And he was the camp director alongside Numbers co-star David Krumholtz and Adam's Family Values. I know you'd like that as a Numbers reference. I know you're a big fan of that show when it's on. <laughs> yeah. 
He was good in that. Uh, and then, of course, I had to mention he's lent his voice to several comic book supervillains. He has been Dr. Kirk Langstrom, Man Bat in The Batman, David Clinton and Kronos in Justice League Unlimited, Professor Evo, I'm probably going to say these names wrong, in Young Justice. He was Doc Ock in The Spectacular Spider-Man, X the Eliminator in Harvey Birdman, Attorney at Law, and The Mad Hatter huh. in the video games Batman Arkham City, Batman Arkham Origins, and Batman Arkham Knights. That's all for Blake, for him to be excited that we mentioned <laughs> Batman in a podcast. And he also voiced Firefly in G.I. Joe Renegades. Oh. No, he says he's from the Upper West Side. Upper West That's Side. That's what he says, yeah. yeah. Where are you from, anyway? Yeah. The Upper West Side, yeah. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. So, in an interview, uh, he revealed that the original script, the character of Yanos, was a rather lackluster villain named Jason. It was McNichol who suggested to Ivan Reitman and Harold Ramis to make the art restorer come from Carpathia, linking him to the painting of Vigo. During filming, McNichol spent a lot of time in his trailer creating Yanos's origin and accent, as well as the mythology of Carpathia, even to the point where I think he drew some maps and had like pictures of like he really went all in on where Carpathia, 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 Carpathia was. So, um, but yeah, Peter McNichol, he was great. This was probably one of the first things I remember seeing him in. Of course, he he had some other roles, like we said later in the '90s. Yeah, he was big on Ally McBeal. It was a big show in the '90s. I wasn't, I didn't, yeah, really I didn't watch, watch that, that show. but I I did know he was yeah, on it. Yeah, I know it, so. and then uh, we're gonna hit a couple of uh, that guys in this one as well. So you've got Kurt okay. Fuller as Jack oh, yeah. Hardemeyer. So Kurt Fuller, of course, is kind of taking his character of Jack Hardemeyer is kind of taking over the the role of William Atherton that he had in the first movie as. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what was his character's name? See, I'm still I'm still blanking. I, again, I, he's Thornburg from Die Hard. That's all you can right. get out of me. Right. Okay. But we know who he is. Uh, <laughs> he's the one that's uh, that the the huge proponent for the Ghostbusters in the first one, and kind of and Kurt Fuller's role is kind of the same. But Fuller has gone to have a very successful career. Well, he's work- the EP, he's the EPA agent. In yeah. The first movie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he's worked with some of Hollywood's best directors, including David O. Russell, Tony Scott, Harold Ramis and Ivan Reitman, among others. His numerous film credits include Wayne's World, The Running Man, one of my favorites, Ray, Pushing Tin, Groundhog Day, Red Heat, and The Pursuit of Happiness. And Psych. And Psych, yes. Of yes, course, the TV show He's Psych. the coroner on yes, Psych. Yes, that's right. Oh, my gosh. It's like I, can't, like, I know I've seen him in a million things, but I would not remember that he was the coroner in Psych until yes. you brought it up. Good old Psych. I love that show. Yep. Woody. Corner Woody. Yeah, Woody, yeah. Oh, man. Good stuff. Uh, all right, and then we have the twins who played Oscar the baby, and I'm going to butcher their last they, names. Yeah, they have a horror. Uh, Deutsch, Deutschendorf. Deutschendorf, uh, but they're actually the nephews of country singer John Denver, whose oh, real yeah. name was Henry J. Deutschendorf. So. Oh, so that's so he's Henry J. Deutschendorf II. Yes, I guess. Okay. Moving on, they were the twins that played the babies, and this is the only thing they ever did, right? Yeah, kind of like a, mm-hmm. kind of like a uh, Charlie and Willy Wonka, like right? The right. only thing. Yep. And then we've got Wilhelm von Humburg as Vigo, at least the body and face of Vigo. We'll get to the uncredited uh, yep. voice of Vigo. 
who also is in Die Hard. I just want to. <laughs> yes, he is. Yes, he is. Yep, he's one of the terrorists. Mm-hmm. So in Hollywood, he made his debut on the popular television show Gunsmoke as Otto. His movies include, to name a few, as Jeremy's already mentioned, Die Hard. He was also in Digstown, The Package, Eye of the Storm, and The Mouth of Madness, and The Devil's Brigade. Uh, uncredited, Max von Sydow provided the voice of Vigo. He completed his recordings in a single day, but Wilhelm only learned of his voice being dubbed while watching the premiere and stormed huh. out. He later said that his slurred voice, which was caused by a split lip, had been a hindrance in securing acting oh, work, so that's why I really that. bothered him that they didn't use but his voice. to not voice. tell him, that, that, yeah. And then one little note, Vigo isn't based on a specific historical figure, but his appearance and backstory were strongly influenced by Vlad Dracula and Grigory Rasputin. Makes sense. Yeah. Especially when they talk about uh, killing him mm-hmm. and, like, before his head head died. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So a few cameos that are in this one that I thought were fun. One that we don't see, but you you see it in the deleted scenes. Eugene Levy was cast as Lewis's cousin Sherman, an employee of the psychiatric ward where the Ghostbusters were imprisoned. The character was instrumental in their escape, but his scenes were cut after test screenings. Producer Peter Afterman wanted to hire Bobby Brown, who was a big singer at the time, who had a recent succession of hit songs to contribute to the film's soundtrack. To secure Brown's involvement, Afferman offered Brown's music label, MCA Records, the rights to the Ghostbusters 2 soundtrack. Bobby Brown agreed in exchange for a role in the film. Filming had nearly concluded at that time, but Reitman wrote Brown a cameo as the mayor's doorman, which I remember they play his song like right before that, and it plays all yeah. during that scene, and then it comes back a little later in the movie. That was definitely a big hit uh, when that song came out. I don't think it's as big as Ghostbusters. I think it was a big hit, but most people don't associate it with Ghostbusters. Oh, no. Unless you hear the rap in the middle that mentions the Ghostbusters in it. But the song really doesn't have much to do with the movie at all. So It's one of those songs that'll play, and you'll sit there and you'll go, I know that's from something. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right, right. My favorite cameos, of course, are at the uh, birthday party. So the kid who tells Ray that, according to his dad, the Ghostbusters are, quote-unquote, full of crap, is played by Jason <laughs> Reitman, the son of director Ivan Reitman, yep. uh, who also went on to direct Juno up in the air and, of course, Ghostbusters Afterlife. Uh, Reitman's daughter, Catherine, plays the girl with the puppy in Egon's lab. Oh, okay. Like, yeah. Let's see what happens when we take the puppy away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm studying human dynamics. What did he say? He was the, had the couple in there. He was raising the temperature. It was it up was, to 90, yeah, it was like up to 90. 95 degrees. <laughs> yeah. Or I'm just going, there ain't no way they're still staying. Right, like, right. How are you still sitting there? It's crazy. All right, anybody else in the cast that I may have missed or overlooked? That we oh, come on. About? You're going to talk about cameos and not mention Cheech Marin? Yeah, I forgot to mention Cheech. I, I, that was, uh, yeah. He was actually included in some of the reshoots, so I do kind of mention him a little later. Uh, but yeah, so he was brought in for some reshoots after some test audiences were not very happy with the ending. But yeah, uh, very brief. The very yeah, brief scene. He just watches the watches the Titanic arrive, mm-hmm. and then watches the Statue of Liberty walk by. Mm-hmm. So that's that's all he does. Yeah. Uh, and then I, you know, I gotta admit, the the judge. 
Yes, um, yes. He's been yeah, in a bunch I mean, of stuff, too. Yeah, yeah he, he's a big, I don't know if you'd call him a character actor, mm-hmm. but, uh, but yeah, I know him from a whole bunch of stuff. Yes, Harris Eulen. Eulen, okay, yep. yeah. And you want to, most people would not know what I'm talking about, <laughs> but he was in Bean. Oh, okay. The Mr. Bean American movie. Yeah, yeah. He was in Bean, and he played Stuart's dad in <laughs> Stuart Saves His Family. Oh, gosh. Yeah, there's a movie yes. I'd like to forget. Those are the obscure <laughs> 90s movies. <laughs> that he was, but he's been in a bunch of stuff. I mean, yeah. You, I mean, you he's, reckon, the, he's, he's the, instantly he's the doctor. He's the doctor in Multiplicity. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's one of yeah. my favorites. One of my favorite Michael Keaton movies outside of Batman. Uh, so fun. Was that a Reitman movie? Multiplicity? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I think it was. It, it Wait. May have been a Harold Ramis Hel- movie. Uh, it's one of the... Okay, I'm about to pull it up. I think when you get in the 90s, I think Harold Ramis starts being the actual director of the lot of, a lot of the movies you yeah. would have thought. You were right. Or Harold, Reitman. Harold Ramis was the director of Multiplicity. 1996. Good call. Larry knows his movies of the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> I, again, yeah. I, I probably know my 90s movies a little bit better than yeah, yeah. my 80s ones. Which we talked about, uh, just to plug my own show, Go we talked it. about that when, when mm-hmm. uh, we did the the bracket on the mm-hmm. 90s comic, comic book, book movies. Movie. Yeah. Is that is that 90s movies are the ones I, I'm more connected to. Mm-hmm. So if we ever move to uh, the 90s flick flashback, you'll be an even more frequent guest than you are now. Yes, and you'll hear a lot more of I saw <laughs> it in the theaters. theaters yeah. yeah, exactly. Or it'll turn into I rented it from Blockbuster. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's what that'll be. All right, well, let's uh, let's jump into iconic and favorite scenes. So is there, a, is there an iconic scene for Ghostbusters 2? When someone says Ghostbusters 2, what scene immediately pops in your head? Uh, Ghostbusters 2, what scene immediately pops into my head? Honestly, probably just the picture of them at the end, like just the painting. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. See, I don't know, because again, I'm I'm such a big fan. Iconic versus favorite kind of blurs for me. Well, that's fine. You can, you can... Uh, Because the courtroom scene mm-hmm. is probably my favorite scene. The, the do, Ray, Egon. I remember running around the playground. Like singing that, mm-hmm. like you know, me and a couple other guys playing Ghostbusters, right? And that would every time I'd go to fire up my my proton pack, that's I would do the dough, mm-hmm. you know. But that's just that's one of my favorites. Yeah, you know, the Scolari brothers were based on the Blues Brothers. Oh, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You got the the shorter, chubbier one mm-hmm. and the taller, skinny one. Although. I find it so funny that the judge is able to recognize them. Yeah, immediately. I'm like, what do these guys look like when they were alive? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> if this is what they look like here. Uh, the toaster scene. That's another one. Yes. Yeah, the dancing toaster. Yes. Yeah. The toaster scene's a, a, another another one. Um, yeah. I mean, again, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan, so there's mm-hmm. a lot of favorite. I love Peter McNichol when he gets... Uh, I don't know, pos- whatever you want to call it, possessed by Vigo. Mm-hmm. And just the, because you got to think, there was no little bolts going into his eyes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the way he shakes and then goes to the floor mm-hmm. and convulses and he's doing the, whoa, 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 <laughs> like, just so funny. There's so many funny scenes. Yeah, so for, like, for me, for Iconic, the two scenes that immediately pop in my when I think about Ghostbusters 2 is the Slime River when they're lowering Ray down 
yeah. and him kind of dipping it into the the river. I remember that was kind of a vivid scene for me. And then, of course, the Statue of Liberty, uh, you know, coming across, which is, you yeah. know, trying to be like the Stay Puff Marshmallow. But it's still a big, it's a big piece of the, the ending. Um, it is. It. I have a problem with it, oh, though, there's, story-wise. There's, there's problems with it, but yeah. But it's still I, like Well, kind of, I have a problem with it story-wise. Okay. Uh, you know, th- not even considering the logistics, but... <laughs> um, but the fact that it was, we need this... We need a bunch of positive energy. Mm-hmm. Okay, first off, as soon as you arrive to that museum, there's like half the city of New York cheering you on. Mm-hmm. So there's already a bunch of positive positivity in the atmosphere there. Mm-hmm. Second, it is New Year's Eve. <laughs> so there's a bunch of people celebrating, right, especially right. in New York City. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't get what we need a symbol. Mm-hmm. Um, so they go to get the Statue of Liberty. I'm sorry. If I'm standing there outside a museum that is covered in a giant jello mold, mm-hmm. and then I all of a sudden start feeling a rumble, <laughs> positivity is not going to be right, my right. emotion. Seeing the Statue of Liberty walking down the road mm-hmm. is not going to be an emotion. The person whose car got crushed <laughs> by the Statue of Liberty right, right. is not feeling positive emotions. Mm-hmm. So so storyline-wise, think, without thinking of all the logistics of, of it walking, it didn't make sense of how that was bringing off enough positivity mm-hmm. to break through the goo. Yeah, it almost seems yeah. like me. All you got to do is play the, you know, your love, is right? The song. Right. Yeah, you just got to play the song. Mm-hmm. Play the song. It allowed speakers towards the museum and the. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I feel like Bill Murray could just get up there and ad lib for five minutes, getting people to sing along, and would probably <laughs> yeah. would probably get them pretty pretty excited. Uh, but yeah, I, I always my challenge has always been with they spray it with the slime. But then once it's underwater, doesn't the slime wash off? So would it continue to move? Is it is it is the Jeez, slime? Jeez, Tim, I've never even thought about that. <laughs> that's the, that's the, slime. the slime is obviously water resistant. So yeah. Yeah. Jeez, there's another problem. <laughs> and it just happens to be tall enough because you know they're all in the crown of the Statue of Liberty. So thank yes. goodness it wasn't any deeper because then she would have completely been underwater with all of the yes. Ghostbusters. So. But I don't know how deep that that river is. I don't. Yeah, know. yeah. So, but anyway, uh, but it's still an iconic scene for me. Uh, the ending doesn't connect as well as it should. No. All right. So, but let's see. Favorite scenes. I love the courtroom scene. That was good. Um, yep. I do like the scenes with uh, Bill Murray and Oscar. Like, oh you know, his whole, yeah, he's his so whole, good with that yeah, baby. Yeah. And that whole dynamic of him, you know, wanting to get Dana back and. Uh, you know, that whole dynamic, which I, I, I may not be in this one. I may not include in my notes, but one of the issues was the initial script and the initial cut of the movie was a lot more. They were the main characters. Like it was more about their relationship, trying to come back together than anything else. <clears throat> so they had to throw in a lot more. They had to add in some other scenes. Ghost stuff. Yeah. Yeah. To, that make it a little bit more, uh, include everybody else because it became very uh, Bill Murray and Sigourney Weaver heavy. But then now you think about it, it's like, 
I barely think about her in the movie now. Like she's not as big of a role. Like they're there just to kind of be the yeah. entrance point for them to find the slime. But at that point there's really, they have the bathtub scene or whatever where the bathtub tries to eat them, which is, yeah, that's a kind of a terrifying scene. Yeah. Yeah. But after that, they're kind of not really as big of a part of the story at that point. No, but if you're Dana Barrett at this point, you've got to be questioning your life. <laughs> yeah. Why are you still in New York, New York City? Yeah. I mean, she, yeah. She just happens to have the apartment that was the gateway. <laughs> and then, and of course, she becomes the, the, she, I always get this one. Is she the gatekeeper or the key master? She's the gatekeeper. She's the right? gatekeeper, yeah. Because Lewis the gatekeeper. Was, the, was the key master. And then here she is in this one where she her baby, happen- yeah. yeah. Well, she happens to work at the at the museum where the painting of Vigo comes. Which let's talk about that. How mm. does a concert cellist <laughs> all of a sudden be an expert uh, paint restorer? We call that uh, storytelling convenience. That's what we yeah. call it. What? It's yeah. been it's been five years. She took some classes. What you need her to be? That's... Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and then for uh, Jonas to, of course be uh you know kind of be that he's almost like the new lewis character at this point because he's infatuated with dana and he wants to you know he's kind of pursuing her and she doesn't want to have anything to do with him yeah and he's kind of the weird one so i do like the uh i do like the lewis and janine kind of romantic little storyline thing i think that it's cute yeah it's not it's not well established but it's it is no but it works yeah they they turned her interest away from egon to to Lewis, although I do like that Lewis is wearing Egon's uh, yeah, uh, jumpsuit, which right. also makes no sense because <laughs> Rick Moranis is so much shorter yes, he is. than Harold Ramis. And somehow it fits. Yeah, but yet yeah, it, it fits. He's closer to Ray's height, which, still too, which would still be too tall. But uh, I was about to say, Dan Aykroyd's a pretty tall dude. Yeah. Well, compared to the other three. But, yeah, but yeah, they're all tall. So yeah, we'll we'll talk a little about when I, we'll get into trivia. There's some I'll talk about the uh, original cut and then some deleted scenes because Lewis had a little bit more to do than he than he got in the final cut. But we'll get into that. Uh, any other scenes you want to talk about before we jump into trivia? I mean, there's little moments like we, we talked about with the baby with Oscar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I get a kick just just to how cute it is of mm. the the examination that Ray and Egon do on the baby. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's just a cute little, little moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then at the end when, uh, Janos and, uh, Ray are both covered in the positive goo mm-hmm. and they're all, yeah, I, I love you, man. <laughs> yeah. I, I love you. Yeah. yeah. That's just some fun moments. And I mean, the other thing you have to think about when watching this movie, how would these three doctorates in paranormal you know psychology and all that mm-hmm. how would they had survived if not for winston zettimore yeah exactly he saves their butt like two or three <laughs> times in this movie yeah yeah and that's a question about the i, I was simply watching this where is he during the courtroom scene because he's at, I uh, know he's not on trial because he wasn't well, there. When he they wasn't got there, stuff. yeah. But, he's but why talking, didn't he just show he's, up? Yeah, he's talking to them before the trial starts, and then once the Scalari brothers show up, it's like he's nowhere to be seen. Like you would have thought he would have, you know, kind of joined in at that point. So I felt a little. I, that, I noticed that this time. It's like 
he's not even in that scene at all. Um, it's kind of missing. But yeah, yeah. I mean, he could have come in and done a. Uh, they could have done Do Re Mi Egon. <laughs> right. Exactly. And now these messages. Now playing on a cell phone near you. A show for all the manly men out there. Where guys talk about their favorite movies and what they can teach us about being a man. Featuring the coolest guests. Murder somebody is not like killing an ant. The most gratifying laughs. It's Tombstone, what can I say? (laughs) (laughs) And a fresh take on movies like you've never heard before. This will be the thing that gets written on his proverbial tombstone. We aren't here to criticize the movies you love, but to praise them for how they apply to our lives as husbands, fathers, and really all men in general. So buckle up your seatbelts, because Manly Movies is here. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast catcher. And remember, man up. Hey everybody, do you ever just sit around with your friends and reminisce about days and how things used to be when you were a kid or a teenager or maybe even a young adult. The TV shows and the movies that you watched at the time and how things just aren't quite the same today. Well, let me tell you, I've got the place for you. My name is Chris Adams and I'm the host of the podcast Retro Life for You. And here at Retro Life for You, we talk about and discuss movies and TV that is retro. And we are going back from the 80s and the 90s and into the 2000s. Hey, sometimes we might even touch back to the 70s if we're feeling good. If this is for you, make sure you look for us on everywhere that you can find your podcast at. Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, Google, Stitcher, or hosted on Anchor FM. And make sure you follow us on all the major networks and leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Look forward to hearing from you. Let's talk about some scenes and trivia might spark our, our memory of some other things as well. Uh, as I mentioned earlier about the real Ghostbusters popularity among the children, they made a conscious effort to tone down the adult innuendo and behaviors from the original Ghostbusters. All of the Ghostbusters gave up smoking except for a, soon, a few scenes where Ray has a cigar or pipe in his hand. And the ghost took on appearances closer to those in the animated series rather than the more frightening effects of the first film. Oh, here's another cameo. Brian Doyle Murray, Bill Murray's brother, smokes a cigarette in the Asylum interview scene. And Janine's appearance, I mentioned, significantly changed from Ghostbusters to conform to her animated counterpart in the real Ghostbusters cartoon. Uh, After the release of this movie, Lewis was added into the real Ghostbusters cartoon series. Oh, didn't know that. I did not know that either. Oh, this was a fun... It's fun, but then another thing, it bothered me with with all the uh, logos... But the Ghostbusters TV commercial where Lewis and Janine are in bed when a ghost attacks is a rehash of a scene from the first movie that was filmed but not used. Originally, before the Ghostbusters go on their first call at the Sedgwick Hotel, there was a scene with a honeymooning couple in the hotel who encounter Slimer in their bedroom and call the manager, who in turn calls the Ghostbusters. They kind of repurposed that scene. (laughs) But uh, yeah, the uh, free mug and balloon for the kids limit one per family. Uh, Yeah. I thought was, you know, I was like, yeah, this which is definitely... also, which also have the logo on them. Yeah, exactly. It's like, this is definitely eighties yeah. rear. It's like, are you making fun of the commercialism that you're portraying? Or is that just really, you were genuine of saying, Hey kids, while you're watching this movie, see this mug and this balloon, you probably find it at a store when you leave the movie theater. So go buy one. <laughs> I thought this was great. So the scene where the patrons run out of the movie theater as slime 
oozes from the area, was playing Cannibal Girls from 1973, starring Eugene Levy and Andrea Martin. The film was one of Ivan Reitman's first films as a director, so that's why they used that uh, in the marquee. But viewers who are paying close attention may notice a very similar Easter egg in 2021's Ghostbusters Afterlife. At one point, the camera passes a movie theater in that small town, which also happens to be showing Cannibal Girls. So, huh. nice little shout-out for his dad, I'm sure. This is where I was talking about Lewis. So there's the one scene where Lewis finds Slimer in the fire station, apparently eating his lunch. It was originally intended to be a running gag in the film where Lewis would try and trap the ghost and try to prove himself as a Ghostbuster, which makes more sense why he dons everything at the end and thinks that he's the one that took down the uh, the Jello mold, as you said. Uh, over and the- so does most of New York City. I want to yeah. make that clear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They don't uh, know any different. Yeah, so the idea was cut, but this scene and the sequence at the end where Lewis uh, thinks he removes the slime uh, are the only remains of that running gag, which I think that would have would have been a cute little thing, but I guess it probably did slow down the movie some uh, by having that extra part, extra storyline. I put this in just because we've had discussions previously about letterbox and pan and scan, so this little piece of trivia I thought was fun. Pan and scan is horrible. Okay. Yes. Move on. The original VHS and Laserdisc release of this movie was in Letterbox, prompting calls to RCA and Columbia to find out if there was a printing problem. To make matters worse, it was not Letterboxd oh in the film's original aspect ratio of 2.35-1. I don't know how you even read that, but, you know, the original aspect ratio. But Letterboxd and then panned and scanned yeah. into a smaller frame. What? <laughs> Viewers who liked full-frame movies had to put up with the black bars at the top and bottom of the screen, and those who wanted films in the original aspect ratio had to deal with a picture that was cropped on the sides and panned and scanned in some other shots. Uh. The DVD release in 1999 was the first time the film was presented in its original aspect ratio on home video. Uh, yeah. I don't, <laughs> they just didn't know what to do. They were just like, just throw the bars on there. It'll be fine. They'll think it's real. <laughs> no. God, that's even worse. Yeah, I was like, who wants who wants bars and pan and scan? That's like, yeah, worse. that's worse. And when, and when I read that, I was like, there had to have been some other movies that did that. Because I remember watching, you know, when DVDs first came out and getting the the letter, I would want the letterboxed versions. And there would still be scenes like, why does it look like it's panned and scanned there? Like, it was like, they some some scenes just weren't kept perfectly. So, uh, so crazy. Yeah. No, uh, yeah, I remember working at Blockbuster and people would be so upset with mm-hmm. the the bars. Mm-hmm. I want to, I want to see the whole movie. I'm like, yeah, you are <laughs> seeing the whole movie. Yep. And then I remember so so glad when the flat screen TVs finally came out mm-hmm. and they were the actual right ratio mm-hmm. that the it would it would almost take out the black bars. Yeah. Uh, for most movies, depending on the ratio. Well, you know, there was that but, time when when the, uh, which I think some TVs may still have it now, but they would have the TV mode or the picture mode where you would have the different versions where it would like, it would zoom in so oh, that you would, yeah. take, you would take out the black bars or uh, Yes, but it would also mode. take out the sides right. of the movie. And then the picture was more blurry because it's, it's, you know, more pixelated when you watch it that way. Yep. Uh, uh, good old yeah, 90s you, technology, early yeah. 2000s. 
I used to have a whole, I think a whole day's lesson on this when I taught film. So <laughs> you you might want to move on before yeah, we, <laughs> we make this a really long yeah. episode. We'll make that. We'll, we'll do a bonus episode about Laramie will hear to discuss pan about, scan versus yeah, letterbox. Let's talk about how Ted Turner ruined movies. <laughs> it wasn't the first way he ruined it, I'm sure. No. Colorized him. Colorized him, too. Yeah, that was, that, was, that was, yeah. That was the first travesty. First of many. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the alternate versions. During the filming, there were several cut scenes that were not included in the final version. One of the scenes involved the character Raymond Stance being possessed by Vigo, which you kind of see here when he first sees yeah, the painting. Yeah, he, he kind of gets yeah, um, mesmerized right, by it. Right, right. After inspecting the painting, this caused Raymond to drive the ectomobile erratically until he was freed by Winston. Once again, you said Winston saved him. This explains Raymond's possession in the finale. Some of this footage was used also in the montage. Which, um, does he not look like his judge character from Nothing But Trouble? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When he's possessed by Vigo? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe where he got the character from. He should have put it back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we mentioned earlier about Lewis trying to capture Slimer. Uh, the scenes were removed because test audiences found them to be intrusive. Slimer was eventually reduced to only two appearances. The director uh, said that they kept some Slimer scenes for the children, but audiences <laughs> audiences generally did not react to the character as they had expected. So it's like, we've yeah. got to keep Slimer in the movie. And then when they actually showed it, like nobody cared that Slimer was in the movie at all. It was it is it is crazy to go back and realize that the popularity of Slimer was from the cartoon. Yes. Not from the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Slimer was popular in the first one, but he was but he became his own character, really. Yes. In the in the, the cartoon. Yes, we we didn't have the uh, the ecto high C drink uh, right. because of the movies. <laughs> right, it was the cartoon. We had it because of the cartoon. Mm-hmm. All right, so another one was we mentioned earlier about Eugene Levy playing the cousin freeing the Ghostbusters from the psychiatric hospital. That was removed, and a new scene was added to explain the mayor's involvement in securing their release. This new scene showed a paranormal eclipse from the mayor's office. Other removed scenes showed Ray and Egon experimenting with the slime, which explained how they learned to control it to move the Statue of Liberty. A ghost was also removed from the sequence in which slime caused ghosts to rise across New York because Ivan Reitman felt they were not creepy enough. Which one thing they did talk about, I may not have had this in the notes either, is that their time to make, like they had to make this one a lot faster. So a lot of the effects, they couldn't, they didn't have as much time to work on the effects as they did in the first one. So some of the ghost effects were not as they kind of got dinged for not being as good as the original. But I think they also probably cut some things because it didn't, it didn't look as good either. Well, you're not going to top the extremely terrifying taxi driver from the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Or the librarian, the librarian scene really scared me as a kid. Yeah, the librarian's a good one too. Yeah. Really scared me as a kid. Uh, So after some disastrous test screenings, The cast and crew realized that the final act they had shot simply didn't work, and with their June 1989 release looming, they needed to get it fixed quickly. As a result of this, Ivan Reitman rapidly called the shots on four days of reshoots conducted between March and April of 89, barely two months before the film was set to open. As well as completely reshooting the last 25 minutes, Reitman added a number of additional scenes, including the ghost train and the photography darkroom scene. Uh, those are some good scenes. Yeah. The darkroom scene is one that I liked. I thought that was a cool... Yeah. They said he had to go in and, and add some more of those thrilling kind of scary moments. And the train scene is pretty good. But 
wasn't there a ghost train in the first one as well or am I or do I think the second scene is in the first one I can't remember a ghost train in the first one maybe that's a scene that sticks out to me so I think yeah I mean it's I mean it's one. great a great job there for Ernie mm-hmm. Hudson to be standing there while it's he, it's going <laughs> through him yeah it was I think that was the old New York Central city of Albany derailed mm-hmm. in 1920 killed hundreds of people. Did right. you catch the number on the locomotive? Oh, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. yeah. And Winston says, sorry, I missed it. <laughs> yeah, that was it. That was a good line. That will say they do have great chemistry. Oh, yeah. And I think that's what really makes the movie rewatchable and enjoyable. I mean, the first one as much as the second one is just their their banter and their chemistry. Together. Well, and and not to, not to spoil a movie that's now a couple of years old, but that's mm-hmm. what makes the the big final moment of afterlife mm-hmm. just so good yeah yeah for sure so yeah yeah i'm a big fan of afterlife i thought that i thought they that was one reboot that they they got right it did yeah. really well all right well let's jump into box office i do have a little thing to read here if you listen to last week's episode about uh lethal weapon 2 it's gonna be somewhat of a rehash but you'll it'll, it'll all make sense So, in the late 80s, film sequels were still quite rare, but the concept of the media franchise had quickly developed following the success of the original Star Wars trilogy. A staggering 18 sequels hit the big screen in 1989, including such blockbusters as Indiana Jones and Last Crusade, Back to the The Future Part 2, Star Trek V, The Karate Kid Part 3, With the Weapon (laughs) 2, the Bond movie License to Kill, there are also the horror sequels that year, Nightmare on Elm Street 5, Halloween 5, mm. Fright Night Part Ooh. 2, The Fly 2, and Friday the 13th Ooh. Part 8, as well as comedy sequels, mm. Police Academy 6, Fletch Lives, and that's National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Oh, but if, yeah, look at there. Yeah, so that's a lot. There's a lot, lot. A lot, of, a lot of bad ones in there, though. <laughs> yeah, no. They didn't, say all, they didn't say they were all great. They just said there's it had 18 sequels. Real bad ones in there. Yeah. But, of course, the year's most anticipated film was not a sequel. It was Batman, Batman, which was scheduled for release a week after Ghostbusters 2. And, of course, as we talked about in that episode about Batman, the logo had become ambiguous through the significant marketing campaign aided by its mega conglomerate owner, Time Warner. So shortly before its release, a major theater chain executive said they expected Ghostbusters 2 to make approximately $150 million during its run, which would be behind Indiana Jones and Last Crusade at 20, 225 million and Batman at 175 million but still ahead of Lethal Weapon 2 they estimated to make 100 million. That's still a lot of money yeah. for those movies. So it was originally scheduled to release in July but less than 3 months before the release it was brought forward to June to avoid direct competition with Batman. That did not play out well for them. They should have kept it in July. Yeah. But it got its wide release on June 16th, 1989. It uh, brought in $13 million as opening weekend and earned $29.5 million, but was the number one film of the weekend ahead of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which was in its fourth week of release, and Dead Poets Society, which was in its third. Based on its gross and an average increase of the ticket price, since Ghostbusters release, an estimated 2 million more people went to see the sequel's opening than the first. It broke the all-time record for a one-day opening with approximately $10 million on its opening Friday. It was also the biggest non-holiday opening weekend with $29.5 million narrowly beating Indiana Jones and Last Crusade's opening 
of a three-day gross of $29.4 million. I don't, I've, I've never understood the, I, I get they're wanting to hit the summer blockbuster thing, but mm-hmm. Ghostbusters 2 uh, and Die Hard uh, are the two that come to mind of being summer movies that are actually holiday movies. Like mm-hmm. they're based mm-hmm. during a holiday. Yeah. I don't get that either. Yeah. Think about Gremlins was released in the summer, but it's a Christmas, you know, it's set at Christmas. Yeah. Um, and I forget that this is set at Christmas until it starts and you see the, the wreath, you know, when they go to the birthday party. And then uh, I think Winston makes a comment about, you know, all, you know, they got coming up for the holidays or whatever. And then of course it kind yeah. of, it ends on New, on New Year's, Year's Eve. Eve like, yeah. like, why didn't you release this at Christmas? It would have made a lot more sense and, a little, you know, maybe hit a little bit better story-wise. And then Die Hard was released in, uh, I think, June. June, uh, yeah. Uh, Batman Returns was released in June. It was a summer movie. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, That's right. Yeah, and, and it takes place during Christmas. So, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I don't get that. Like, if you're going to make make the holiday a part of your movie... Then release mm-hmm. around that holiday. Uh. Yeah, and this is too early to be thinking that way, but I think as I got older and I saw movies like that, I was kind of thinking about, oh, they're looking at DV- or VHS and DVD sales. Like, oh, it'll be big here, but if we release it now, by the time Christmas rolls around, it'll be a great gift idea to have, you know, at Christmas. Was, so, was that was that the case? Uh I don't know. Late I guess 80s? that's just kind was, of what it was. It would be a six month the, more in the nineties. Yeah. I would think it was, wasn't until mid to late nineties that that six month, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Return mm-hmm. would, would be the guy would think in the eighties, especially with the fact that, cause you and I have talked about Batman being one of the first VHSs that was actually mm-hmm. like affordable. Yeah. You know that. So if you're looking at movies from the eighties. I just, I don't know. I don't see them. Yeah releasing them that but i could be wrong i mean hey, yeah like i said 20, I mean, I'm, 2023 I, that's, that's the a, movie comes out in theaters all you got to <laughs> do is wait like three weeks and it'll be on streaming mm-hmm. so. exactly yeah it's it's definitely different i remember when you know you pretty much had to wait a full year before it made it to cable and then it seemed like it didn't hit the video until like maybe around the same time or maybe a month or two before then yeah so anyway Times have changed, that's for <laughs> sure. Uh, but critical reception, Rotten Tomatoes has Ghostbusters 2 at a 55% on the tomato no. meter and a 61% audience score. No. IMDb is about the same with 6.6 out of 10 with viewers and a 56 on Metacritic, no. which actually is kind of high for Metacritic. But yeah, definitely too low. Yeah. These are not 50 yeah. and 60. Uh, uh, I put in the high 70s. High 70s, low maybe. 80s, yeah. Yeah, I'll yeah. give you that. So, yeah, like I said, I don't consider it better than the first no. one, or even I hate to say it's not as good, but it it's, it, it's, it, it pales yeah. in comparison in a few spots. But it's still a fun, a fun sequel. Yeah. I agree. It's not Karate Kid Three, so <laughs> no, or Fletch Lives. Yeah, <laughs> or some of the other sequels you named that we could. Yeah, it's not Halloween Five. <laughs> or uh police academy six look i'm a fan of police academy six city <laughs> under siege i'm a fan that is look, one of my favorites you're obviously a fan because you knew what the subtitle of that movie was yes I I, you. look look i if 
if there's a a franchise from the 80s that I probably know better than any other franchise from the 80s, it is Police Academy. And that's crazy because uh, I have not covered one of them yet. And oh, I need yeah. to. But it's it that's one of those it's like once you start, you kind of want to do them all. Like you it's hard to break those up, I guess. Well, so yeah. Six six is probably if I were to rank all of the Police Academy movies, in my personal opinion, mm-hmm. six would probably rank third. Okay. Uh, because it's so one, four, and six yeah, are I my top. Four. Yeah, four yeah. was a big one. Yeah, four is the the um, citizens on, on patrol. patrol. Yeah, I remember that yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, five is horrible. That's the the <laughs> mission, Miami mission. Yeah, mission in Miami. Uh no, it's like it's called something else, but it it's not popping in my head right now. Yeah. Um no, the seventh one, which is the forgotten one, that's Mission to Moscow. Okay, and that was the one that was not really like straight, straight, straight yeah, to HBO. It was a straight to HBO yeah. and it is horrible. <laughs> that is definitely the bottom of the barrel on that one. Uh Assignment Miami Beach, that's the fifth one. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Uh because yeah, that's when you you no longer had Steve Gutenberg, uh, right? Right. But they they brought in Lassard's nephew. Oh, is is he nephew? I can't remember. I really don't remember. Yeah, was that but they Matt, brought in, Matt McCoy? Yeah, Matt McCoy played yeah. Nick. Yeah, uh, he's Nick Lassard. Okay. Um, and I want to say he's, he's it's Lassard's uh, Commander Lassard's nephew, Commandant okay. Lassard. Uh, but yeah, Very this possible. isn't a, a police academy episode, so let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> coming out of that yeah so police academy yeah we'll, we'll get to those eventually i've watched i watched one and two a couple of years ago and i was like i'm gonna take a weekend and just watch all of them and i i was like i don't know if i can binge those you need to like watch like one or two a day and then take a few days then come back to it so i don't know Maybe. if i can handle them i have all set i have the box that i'm sure set, i'm so. sure you do i don't doubt that at all all right well this has been another fun episode, as always. So, uh, Laramie, thanks so much for being a part of this one. Uh, got your twofer on this one. You got to do Ghostbusters 1 and 2. Yes. <laughs> yes, completed the, the 80s eighties uh, duo right there. Yeah, yeah. wasn't a trilogy, but we no. it was, was a, 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 two, a duo, maybe. I don't Although know. it was supposed to be a trilogy. There was supposed to be a third one. Yeah, maybe that was the one in space. I don't know. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Please be sure to follow, subscribe, rate, and review the show. You can support the show through buymeacoffee.com. You can buy a t-shirt from the website. We still have some our new merch on tpublic.com, the new designs. If you haven't seen them yet, uh, go check them out. Uh, we do have a new email address now. You can now contact us at info at 80sflickflashback.com. I'm going to have to re-record the intro at some point to reflect that, but... Uh, but yeah, but so info at 80sflickflashback.com is the new email address you can reach us. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with someone else who loves 80s flicks and follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram. I guess it's not Twitter anymore. It's X. When did that X, happen? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I woke up today. Yeah, I was like, what like, is going yeah. on? No, uh, that's yeah. Elon Musk for you. Yeah, so and we we're on threads. I'm still figuring that one out. And TikTok, of course, but... Uh, Laramie, what's going on with uh, moving panels? What do you got coming up for August? So I, I've got 
uh, every August, Ruby gets to do her episode mm-hmm. for her birthday. Mm-hmm. And this one's going to be kind of special because I am not going to be in this episode. Oh, is, okay. Yeah. It is going to be Bethany and Ruby uh, talking about the 2014 movie Annie. Oh, okay. The, the remake. The Jamie Foxx one. Yeah. Yep. yep. Uh, they'll be talking about that. And they're uh, even going to do a one shot where they discuss um, the two, the, the 80s mm-hmm. Annie. Mm-hmm. And this 2014, they're going to skip over the, the television. That's a, yeah, the t- made-for-TV yeah, version. The made-for-TV one, the Disney one, or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Uh, but they're going to talk about kind of the comparison of those two and mm-hmm. their thoughts. Uh, and then uh, you and I are going to end <laughs> end uh, my third year of the podcast, uh, as we always do with a bad movie, and you and I are going to get Morbius. So... Yay! <laughs> yeah, I knew I that, in the back of my mind I know it's coming up, and I'm like, yeah, it's coming. I'm gonna I gotta prepare myself to watch it, but I don't know. It it maybe the second watch will be better than the first one. It won't. Okay, I'll try to tell myself that. It won't. Yeah. Sorry, right. I've watched I've I, watched it twice now. I'll have I'll, I gotta watch it now a third before <laughs> we record. You know, after doing our 90s comic book bracket where we watched like 50 movies over, you know, four weeks or whatever it was, maybe six weeks. Um, I'm going to have heaven. We, uh, he- heaven. No, no. Well, that happened. Some of those were fun to rewatch, but a lot of them were not. But yeah, I'm going to have the movies that I love, like set to go after I finish watching Morbius to get me in a, in a good mood again. Yeah. Like I have to watch yeah. a, a good comic book movie. Yeah. After so, so tune in for uh, September of the 80s like flashback in which it turns into <laughs> the movies Tim loves. Yeah. Of, yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's the theme, the theme for the month. All right, we'll definitely check out Moving Panels with Laramie, as always, and he had a successful summer of Superman, which was a great uh, series that he finished, so if you missed any of those, go back and give him a listen, especially that Superman 3 episode. (laughs) Pretty good guest on that one. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, Laramie, for being here. I'm Tim Williams for the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Good night, good people. We've got control.